Svalbard is like other places we visited this season, surrounded by deep blue Arctic waters, and it has similarly strange geological formations that were created by glacial erosion. But we are now midway between the northern coast of Norway and the North Pole. This is what locals call the Deep Arctic, and it's beautiful. We got here by plane, alongside dozens of tourists from around the world. We could hear Mandarin, Spanish, and French, and Russian, not so much. Under the terms of the Svalbard Treaty of 1920, 14 countries were given equal rights to engage in commercial activities, mainly coal mining in Svalbard. As of this year, only Norway and Russia use this right. That's why there's a Russian settlement here since the 1930s. It's called Barentsburg, and it's basically a coal mining town with a population of more than 400 people. It's also a place where you can see the tension between Norway and Russia up close. You're listening to The Catch, a podcast from foreign policy about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. Today, our final episode for this season, Cod Almighty. What can the Arctic region tell us about fisheries conflicts in the future? But also, what can it tell us about things like diplomacy, climate change, resource extraction, and tourism? Let's start with the last one on that list. Eskild and I had heard that there was a nascent tourism industry in the Russian enclave, Barentsburg. Barentsburg is on the other side of town, so to say, not quite over the tracks, more like over the snowmobile treads. Okay, and our mission now is to find a snowmobile, maybe. Some folks tell us to go to Ruski Dom, or Russian house, a two-level guest house on the Norwegian side of Svalbard, where we can arrange a ride. We walk in, and we don't see anyone there. Hey, we're here. Come in, come in, come okay. in. Okay, you have to use it. Okay. Uh, no. A young man who looks like he's 16 years old or so runs in right behind us. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay. I ask him for a business card so I can call to get more details later. Instead, he takes a piece of paper and writes in cursive, Ruski Dom. That's the name of the guest house where we're standing. We already knew that. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, uh, unfortunately, I gotta go. I okay. can't explain you. I haven't uh, have have time. Okay. But, uh, oh well. After about two minutes, we decide that this is a no go. Have a good day. And thank you. This whole trip, I've been eager to learn the Russian perspective on fishing rights and the cooperation with Norway, but it's difficult to find that here. We hear that Russians in the Barentsburg section of Svalbard want to expand beyond coal and attract tourists. But they weren't trying too hard to attract us. I think there's a real nervous tension here. Remember that despite all of what's happened in the world, Norway's treaty with Russia is still in place, and fishers on both sides of the border are still adhering to this agreement. 
How long this will last, though, is anyone's guess. Sarah Glasser, senior director of the World Wildlife Fund's Oceans Futures, told me we have reasons to be optimistic about fish diplomacy. I think there are three ways that building fish stocks can cause peace. The number one way, which is sometimes more aspirational, but it's frankly my favorite way to think about it, is that discussion of natural resources and food security can oftentimes bring countries to the table and foster avenues for collaboration and cooperation that may not otherwise exist. So I like to think about these kind of exchanges as environmental diplomacy. Secondly, um, bringing communities together and bringing resource managers together in order to propose ways of sharing resources that straddle boundaries. And in the case of communities within one country, or communities between two countries who might be located close to an international border, it can be very important for the health of the fish stock, for managers of that resource, and for the communities who use that resource to come to agreement on how that resource is managed. And then the third way is somewhat indirect. Fisheries are extremely important to support food security, and that means specifically nutrition for people, nutrition for children, uh, and satisfying a predictable set of food options for communities who rely on fisheries, mostly on the coast. And so that kind of environment that has uh, well-managed fisheries, fisheries that are thriving and healthy and biodiverse, that provides predictable levels of food security and nutrition to communities, predictable access to livelihoods and employment and income. And that's one of the key things that can really stabilize communities and reduce the risks of recruitment into violent extremist groups or higher levels of crime and, and insecurity that can follow. While our Russian friend in Svalbard wasn't up for talking, we did find someone else who would speak to us, Vyacheslav Konstantinovich Silanov. I participated in many intergovernmental trips and negotiations for the Soviet Union since 1972. I was a representative of Fishery Minister Alexander Ishkov's delegation. Back in the 70s, Vyacheslav was one of the original negotiators of this Russian-Norway agreement, and he's known as the grandfather of Russian fisheries. It's not the humans, but the fish, who have always guided the cooperation, he says. The fish are calling us to diplomacy from the depth of the sea, saying, please, I can feed you and give you enough food for your table, but you need to make it sustainable. Vyacheslav's take is kind of no-nonsense. Russia and Norway have had a relationship in the Barents Sea for at least the last 500 years. And there has never been anything that would have led to something like war or conflict that could not have been managed by negotiations. So I do believe that scientists save this relationship between these two countries and that it is good relationship and the fishery will continue. But what about the Ukraine war and the recent political tensions that led to most Norwegian ports closing to Russian trawlers? Vyacheslav brushes that aside, says there's a workaround. It didn't impact our economy much because we still can use our ports in Murmansk, Arkhangelsk, 
St. Petersburg. So the impact was not significant and it will not be significant for the Russian economy. And what about climate change? It won't affect the agreement either, he says. The heating of the global oceans would lead to more of the cold and other fish to migrate more to the south and eastern regions. But this wouldn't change the agreement. There is nothing in the legal framework that would lead to any change in the agreement. So as far as Russia is concerned, the country is all in. So the Norway-Russian agreement was always given as a positive example to other countries, where two countries achieve the key to understanding each other's needs and mutual benefits. In other words, everyone wins. But here in Svalbard, the vibe is definitely more skeptical and it's spilling into local politics. On a chilly, cloudy morning, we meet 28-year-old Celine Anderson outside Svalbard's only supermarket. She's handing out flyers and talking to passers-by. Celine is a hotel manager here, and she's running for mayor. We're gonna have an election on Monday, yeah. and you are running for mayor. Yeah, is that right? yeah you can call it a mayor, yeah. I'm a hotel manager for three hotels, and I'm the bar manager or, yeah, for one of the bars up here. So that's already, you're very busy with that. Yeah. Why would you want to get into politics? <laughs> no, because uh, the, the party is standing behind me. They wanted to put me in front, and I think that's like a big thing to just get asked about. And one of my bosses are actually in the party as well, so they were just like, they are supporting me. Of course, the placement of Svalbard is pretty unique, and like, all over the world, people want to know more about Svalbard. They want to know like how it works and how it gets run. So like since Norway owns Svalbard and Russia as well, it's like some tensions going on here. So I think it's pretty nice to like, be the stable Norwegian town we are now. But uh, at the same time, like I like polit uh, political stuff because it's a nice way to to talk to the people and to get like know them and uh, just, just be able to like kind of listen to them and see what you can do in the future. Celine is with Norway's Conservative Party, which is pro-business. And as someone running for office, she's delving into one of the most interesting political landscapes in the world. Because Svalbard is like a 19th century frontier town, where the rules are still very much in flux. It is part of Norway but it does not have the same legal system as the mainland. There are about 2,600 people living here, about half of whom aren't Norwegians. And as of this year, they don't get to vote. For half a century, Svalbard depended on resource extraction, mainly coal, but now tourism is king. And Russia wants a part of that. I tell Celine how Eskild and I wanted to take a look at the Russian part of town, Barentsburg, and got nowhere. So I'm curious if you, if you become mayor, would there be a specific stance on this relationship with, with Russian neighbors? Would that even affect you at all? Yeah. Is that something that you think about? Yes and no. What she's telling us is that there are about 80 different tourism-related companies in Svalbard, all of them Norwegian companies, and they basically rule by consensus. But there are people from all over the world here and there's a fear that their business interests could grow. If Barentsburg was to attract more Russian tourists, 
that would mean that their influence over Svalbard could grow as well. And this puts Celine and other local politicians in a somewhat awkward position. So it's kind of hard because they are our neighbors and it's not the people that's wrong. It's the system and it's the government and it's, it's Russia itself. It's not the people. So I, I, kind of, I kind of feel bad for them because I know they are trying to come here sometimes and we just see how the war is going on and going on. So you see, the fishing cooperation in the Barents Sea doesn't necessarily apply to land. And with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, whatever coexistence there was in Svalbard is rapidly disappearing. Before the war in Ukraine, Russia had announced plans to develop tourism in Barentsburg. But there were also plans for a fish processing and export facility there. And Norwegian authorities denied the permit. And now there's this very Cold War-esque fear that Russia could stake a claim to this territory into the wider Arctic, a gateway into untapped oil and gas reserves, seabed minerals used for electric batteries, shipping routes, and obviously, the fish we've been telling you all about, cod. The Arctic contains a wealth of natural resources. It is also at the forefront of the climate crisis. Tourism and scientific research are the fastest growing sectors here. In a twist of irony, all those images of polar bears adrift on melting sea ice have set off a race to see this place before it's gone. Everyone seems to want to witness, or understand, I guess, a part of the world that's warming at four times the rate of the rest of the planet. The changes have attracted diplomats too. Well, I think in the 90s there was this sense that there was something going on in the Arctic because with the ice receding, it was understood that there would be new economic opportunities, there would be implications not for, just for Arctic states, but for non-Arctic states as well. This is Evan Bloom. I had a career at the U.S. Department of State where I had senior positions, including as the director of the Office of Ocean and Polar Affairs, and the uh, acting uh, deputy assistant secretary for oceans and fisheries. And chief among Bloom's concerns has been the disruption caused by climate change. New shipping routes, new uh, you know, changes to the environment that would affect the indigenous and local communities. Uh, there's a great deal was going on, and, and all of that has continued to accelerate. So the Arctic has become more and more important strategically, environmentally, for a whole host of not just the countries, but economic interests and local inhabitants as well. Bloom was instrumental in the founding of something known as the Arctic Council, a coalition of eight states with territory north of the Arctic Circle, the most prominent of these being Russia. And of course, the thing about the Arctic is uh, half of it is made up by Russia. And so the relationship between Russia and other countries is central to Arctic relations. And certainly in the context of the Arctic Council, the relationship with Russia was quite good. Um, there was work going on with respect to uh, economic development and uh, scientific cooperation that d despite the tensions that were going on in, in other contexts. And then with the further uh, invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia in early uh, 2022, 
there was uh, a change and the um, this this kind of cooperation within the context of the Arctic Council uh, more or less broke down and so the countries other than Russia, the seven countries uh, other than Russia, said they weren't willing to continue business as usual within the, with the Council, so they paused that uh, cooperation, uh, and then there have been some steps uh, forward since then as the chairmanship of the Council shifted from uh, Russia, it's, it goes with a two-year chairmanship, shifted from Russia to Norway, uh, and now Norway is, is leading efforts. It's not business as usual uh, by any means, but there are some limited steps to bring the work of the council back online. It does seem to me like, in a way, we're kind of in this heyday of, of awareness and willingness to manage the oceans, for lack of a better term, better in recent years and more cooperatively among among parties and and perhaps it's because of very much because of this urgency of climate change. Would you say that's that's the case? I do think that's the case. We've seen a a sense that the ocean is important for biodiversity. It's important for human health. It's in, important for food security. It's important for the climate system. It, it's just uh, plays such an important role. And so there's a desire internationally to think in terms of how can we reduce plastic pollution? How can we deal with problems related to ocean acidification? How can we deal with the collapse of fish stocks? Do we need to set aside large areas to improve the, the chances that ocean areas will survive and promote biodiversity? What happens in Svalbard may just help us find the answers to many of these questions, especially if all the various stakeholders, countries, parties, businesses, fishers communities, indigenous peoples, tourists, scientists, if they can all start moving in the same direction, towards cooperation, like Russia and Norway have for five decades already. So we started this season in Svalbard, remember? I never thought I'd ever have to worry about coming face to face with a polar bear, but that's the situation I found myself in this past October. It was 9 p.m. on a Friday night on an island in the Arctic, 4,000 miles from my home in Tucson, Arizona, and less than 700 miles from the North Pole. Obviously, I never did run into a polar bear. I didn't freeze to death that night as I got lost looking for our hotel. But I won't lie, I got really scared at one point. I was freezing and disoriented, my phone was dead, and I'm ashamed to say that I even thought, well, this would be a terrible and really dumb way to go, wouldn't it? Yes, it would have. And then, about 15 minutes after that morbid epiphany, I ended up at the top of a hill, and from there I could see the little Christmas lights at the entrance to our hotel over in the distance, and farther out I could even see snow-capped mountains contrasting with the darkness of the Arctic Sea. 
the same cobalt blue waters where cod has been thriving and feeding narwhals and whales and humans for thousands of years. At that moment, it was hard not to be awestruck by the beauty of this place, which has been the stage of so many events, from the Cod Wars that started in the 1950s to facing the reality of climate change to the emergence of fish farms. This is a place that is both remote and yet at the center of it all. I'm leaving Norway with a newfound appreciation for cod, the every person fish, the fish that has inspired poetry and sustained populations for centuries and whose untamed ways are teaching us to find new ways to get along. That's it for part six of The Catch. This is our final episode. Our season has come to an end. Thank you for joining us. Our show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Olatunji Osho-Williams, and Avan Munoz. Special thanks to my co-reporter, Eskild Johansson, who has nothing to do with me foolishly getting lost in the snow. And also thanks to our translator, Anton Loboda. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or head over to foreignpolicy.com where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. <laughs>